On this week's 51%, we recognize Breast Cancer Awareness Month. We tune into a virtual conference at the University of Vermont Cancer Center and speak with Albany Medical Center's Dr. Lynn Choi about what you can do to reduce your risk for the disease. Figure out what your normal breast is and anything different bring to your doctor. WAMC's Ashley Hupful also brings us a story on sex work in New York State, coming up on 51%. I was standing around like one of those girls I had seen in a movie. The whole world was a movie back then. I had my sunglasses on, I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh Lita. I wasn't really in it. I didn't really get it. You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and experiences. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jesse King. We're bringing you another trio of healthcare stories today. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and while, of course, the point is to better inform the public about breast cancer, many of us are already well aware of it. According to the National Cancer Center, it's the most common type of cancer in the U.S., with 284,000 new cases expected nationwide this year. So odds are you or someone you know has been affected by this disease. Luckily, compared to other cancers, it has a pretty good survival rate. The American Cancer Society put the relative five-year survival rate at 90 percent, but it depends on how early it's caught. And for the past year and a half, the coronavirus pandemic has forced many people to postpone or cancel their regular checkups and screenings, including mammograms. Now doctors and health officials are urging the public to resume their recommended care schedules, and they're discussing ways to improve detection and treatment on their end as well. The University of Vermont Cancer Center recently held its 24th annual Women's Health and Cancer Conference. The meeting, held virtually due to the pandemic, brought together experts on cancer detection and prevention, wellness, and survivorship. WAMC's North Country Bureau Chief Pat Bradley brings us more. The University of Vermont Cancer Center has been holding the annual meeting to bring caregivers, patients, and the community together to share experiences and clinical information. Larner College of Medicine Dean Richard Page says the conference furthers the center's patient center care concept. This conference will update participants on several important and relevant topics, including research affecting breast and other cancers the role of the immune system in cancer, and the use of complementary and integrative approaches to care. COVID itself has had an undeniable impact on cancer patients and their providers. University of Vermont Cancer Center Director Dr. Randall Holcomb has been a leader in cancer research for over 30 years and took the helm of Vermont Center in the summer of 2021. Since 1974, the University of Vermont Cancer Center clinicians and researchers have delivered compassionate and cutting-edge care, worked to advance cancer research, and uphold a commitment to our community. Our Women's Health and Cancer Conference speak to health disparities, financial costs, and patient and provider support because we are invested in identifying critical problems for the populations we serve and tailoring our programs to reduce the burden of cancer. Vermont Commissioner of Health Dr. Mark Levine has been guiding the state's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. He outlined the core topic areas of the new 2025 version of the Vermont Cancer Plan. First of all, health equity, the fair and just opportunity to be healthy. And when we speak about equity, 
we're generally finding the populations that we historically have found do not have that same fair and just opportunity due to socioeconomic disadvantages, historical injustices, other types of systemic inequalities. We're also going to be focusing on cancer prevention, cancer early detection, therapy, survivorship, and advanced care planning. Dr. Levine then outlined the impact of the pandemic on cancer care. Significant delays in care occurred during the pandemic with regard to cancer treatment. Now, some of these are because the patients weren't accessing this. Some of this is because clinicians weren't able to allow their patients to access this. And there's a whole host of other reasons. There are projections that have been made to indicate three to 4,000 excess deaths may occur in areas related to breast, cervical, and colorectal cancer because of the pandemic alone. Keynote speaker Dr. Rachel Greenup is chief of breast surgical oncology at Smilo Cancer Hospital's Breast Center at Yale New Haven, Connecticut. She said breast cancer remains a major public health and financial issue in the U.S., with one in eight women diagnosed during their lifetime. Sadly, the U.S. health system is the most complicated and expensive health system in the world. And we know by 2020, breast cancer costs alone estimated about $20 billion. Breast cancer patients are living longer. When we think about breast cancer survivorship, we have to wonder how improved survival results in higher costs for our patients and the health system. Breakout topics during the conference included discussions on the immune system, COVID and cancer, integrative approaches, wellness, multidisciplinary breast cancer treatment, and disparities in prevention, screening, and survivorship. I'm Pepper Atlee, WAMC News. So the way doctors look at and approach cancer is constantly in discussion. But in the spirit of awareness, let's get into detail about what breast cancer looks like, how it's treated, and how you can reduce your risk of the disease. Dr. Lynn Troy is a board-certified breast surgeon at Albany Medical Center with years of experience in cancer-related surgery and surveillance of high-risk breast cancer patients. To be clear, she says just about all women, and some men, let's not forget, have at least some risk of developing breast cancer, particularly as they get older. But some factors can put certain people at more risk than others, and when you should start to more closely monitor your body depends on your personal risk level. So I got the chance to speak with Dr. Troy about these things. I started, though, simply by asking her what prompted her to become a breast surgeon. So I did a general surgery residency. As I was realizing I was becoming a mother, I became very interested in women's health. I did go to a women's college. I was surrounded by a strong support system of women. And the fact that breast cancer affects one in eight women, you're in a room full of people, there's going to always be a handful of women who have breast cancer. 
And the main reason I wanted to go into this is with surgery, there's two types of surgeries. There's surgeries where you operate, patient gets better, and then they go on their own path. A woman who has breast cancer, you're their doctor for life. Patients really become your family. During the pandemic, a lot of people were letting their routine appointments sort of slide. Um, Now that the vaccine is out, are you seeing more women come in for mammograms and for checking for stuff like this, or are people still hesitant? People are getting much better. There's always still a hesitancy, but it's much better now that the vaccine's out. When the vaccine was not out at the height of the pandemic, mammograms were down by 40%. That's a significant number. That's an issue because the beauty of the mammogram is you catch these breast cancers early. If you catch a breast cancer early, it's actually a very treatable disease, excellent prognosis. Now we're seeing an influx of women trying to catch up with the mammograms that they did miss during the pandemic. At what point should women start thinking about getting mammograms and how often should they get tested? So the general guideline that we follow, the American Society of Breast Surgeons, which falls under the American College of Surgeons, is 40. You should start getting your annual mammogram. However, if you think you have a higher risk, whether your aunt had breast cancer, your mother had breast cancer, when you start having these questions, see a doctor, whether it's a general practitioner or they can refer you to a breast doctor, to figure out if you're higher risk for breast cancer. It's a pretty straightforward algorithm that we have on our computers that we plug in different risk factors. And if you end up being high risk factor, meaning greater than 20% lifetime risk of breast cancer, we may suggest earlier um, imaging. There's also a genetic aspect. So 5 to 10% of all breast cancers are due to a genetic mutation that your family might carry. If you have that, imaging can be done even earlier, starting at 25. But we do encourage clinical breast exams on an annual basis earlier before you get your breast imaging. Okay, so genetics can play a role in calculating someone's risk for breast cancer. When determining that risk, what are some of the other things you're looking at? So when I talk to a patient who doesn't have any medical background, I basically talk about risk factors, meaning what are the factors that cause you to have your period less. Those are favorable factors in decreasing breast cancer occurrence. So how many times did you get pregnant? So the more times you get pregnant, the less time you have your period. If you breastfeed, the less you'll have your period. So these factors we think of as favorable because they decrease hormonal um, exposure. Oh, okay. So it has a lot to do with hormones. Absolutely. So we ask about that. Other things we can ask is, some women may have had hysterectomies for various reasons. Are you put on a hormone replacement therapy? If you're put on that, there's an association. Longer use of hormone replacement therapy is associated with a risk factor of breast cancer. So hormones are the big factor. Genetics is another. And then the other one is environmental. How much do you drink? Are you exercising? What's your body mass index? Fat, it's called adipose tissue, and they can produce estrogen hormones as well. What are some of the warning signs of breast cancer? I always tell women to be aware of their breasts. The younger you are, the more dense your breast is. Younger women have more lumpy, bumpy breast tissue, so it's a little hard to 
say, oh, is this just my density or is this a mass? So I tell women, try to be aware of what your breast is. Also, you know, once in a while, take a look in the mirror. When you raise your hands up, do you see any new dimpling? Is your nipple being pulled in? Do you feel a new mass? Do you have any nipple discharge? So figure out what you think your normal breast is and anything different is something I would absolutely say bring to um, your doctor. And are there different types of breast cancer? Yes, there are a lot of different types of breast cancer. Just to generalize, the breast is made up of lobules and ductiles. So if you were breastfeeding, lobules are what produces breast milk. Ducts is what brings the milk from the lobules to the nipple. 80% of breast cancers affect the ducts. The rest are usually lobular. And then within that, you can also um, differentiate kind of the profile of the breast cancer. When you get a breast cancer diagnosis by a biopsy usually, so let's say a woman comes in, they feel a mass, then the doctor sends them for imaging and they actually see a mass, then they're offered a biopsy that the radiologist performs. It's like a one-hour procedure. You go in, they numb the area up, and there's a little pressure and by the image they can get Small little biopsy tissue sample, very small. I would say like inchworm size, very small. If that comes back as breast cancer, there's three receptors that we always look for for an invasive breast cancer. By definition, invasive starts at a stage one. The three receptors you always look at are two female hormones, estrogen, progesterone, and the last receptor is HER2, H-E-R number two. We always look at, you know, is this receptor positive, this negative? If all three are negative, you have what's called a triple negative breast cancer, and that is one of the most aggressive breast cancers because there's really no target for a medication. The majority of breast cancers that affects postmenopausal women, they end up being hormone positive, and if it's positive, that means you have your candidate for a medication to bind that, and you have medications to decrease your breast cancer recurrence. Does that make sense? I think so. So when we talk about like lobular and duct, that's sort of the location, but there can be different types even within those categories. Absolutely, based on the receptor status. Okay. What would be the treatment options going forward from there? Typically, in early breast cancer, you usually have surgery to remove the cancer, usually a stage one and a two. If you have a more advanced breast cancer or a more aggressive breast cancer based on the profile, you may be offered chemotherapy up front to try to shrink the tumor and then have surgery after. If that's successful, like what are the odds that it can come back? So it depends. Typically with early breast cancers, we're talking stage one or two, They have an excellent prognosis. We're talking disease-free survival in 5 to 10 years greater than 90%. It's more the later stages or more aggressive cancers, such as if all the receptors are negative, you can have a higher rate of recurrence. So say there's a possibility that breast cancer sort of runs in the family. And in my own case, multiple women in my family have either had like close brushes with it or have been diagnosed with it. Is there a way to know whether or not you have a genetic risk for getting breast cancer? Yes. 
people who have a family history, I always offer if they would like to see a genetic counselor. Based on the National Cancer Comprehensive Network Guidelines, NCCN, anyone can look that up online. That's the big Bible for all types of cancer. They do have certain requirements, like if this woman is diagnosed with no family history but less than 45, they should be recommended genetic referral. There's different guidelines where genetic referral is always recommended, but now we do offer it to all women or anyone who's interested. If that's the case, we send the referral, then they meet with the genetic counselor, they go through their history and offer it to them. If they would like it, it ends up being a blood test. They test multiple genes to see if you're at risk for one of these breast cancer mutations. About a decade or so ago, the only genes that they did test are the BRCA genes, BRCA1 or 2. That's a high-risk gene. Now they test the high-risk and other genes that are more moderate-risk genes. So it's if you are curious, I would recommend bringing it up to your doctor or seeing a breast specialist, and they would be happy to offer you genetic testing if you're interested. I think the more information you have about your health, it's better for yourself and for your relatives. If you're in that case, like, are there ways you can reduce your risk? Depending on which gene you have, usually what's offered is you can do bilateral prophylactic mastectomies or you can have imaging surveillance. So you'll get annual mammograms and you will get annual breast MRIs. Breast MRIs are the most sensitive breast imaging that we offered. We do not offer to every woman. If every woman got this, this would lead to a high rate of false positives. But people who are at higher risk, we do recommend it. So every six months, you're getting some sort of surveillance. Or just any woman in general, we would talk about lifestyle modifications, exercise on a regular basis, good plant-based diet, decreasing hormonal risk factors. Some women come in having been on hormone replacement therapy for a decade, we talk about trying to reduce that. I heard exercise and a plant-based diet. Specifically, how much exercise are we talking here and which foods? We're talking about vegetables. Ooh, I tell patients it's good to have a very colorful plate, more greens, more reds. They have more antioxidants that helps block the various pathways associated with cancer. So a colorful diet, that's what we generally recommend. 150 to 200 minutes a week. It sounds a little daunting at first, but once you start doing it, how you split that up, that's up to the patient, but at least 150 minutes a week of exercise. Is it okay if I like run some things that I've heard by you and you can tell me whether sure. or not there's anything, that, any like of credence to them? So I've heard things sure. like different deodorants can increase no. your risk. Of, okay. So that's, that's no? No. So what about things like underwire bras or wearing no, a bra no, no. often? No, no. Are there any other myths out there that people should just be forgetting? Well, a couple years ago at one of the conferences I went to, there was a question of hair dye and the association. There's no absolute association, but they've been looking into this. So I guess for women who, I don't know how often, but maybe ask if they could have a more natural hair dye, but there's no real direct association with that. 
As someone who's in the field who works at an academic medical center, what are some other things that people are researching right now? So when we talk about breast cancer, there is an early stage breast cancer. That's a ductal carcinoma in C2 where it's in the ducts and hasn't gone out. That's usually a clinical stage zero. There's current research going on now to see if that can be treated medically and not with surgery. So if a woman has a ductal carcinoma in C2 diagnosed, now the standard of care is to perform surgery. There is active research going on to see if we can actually avoid surgery in early breast cancers. There's excellent research going on to try to do less but have excellent outcomes in our breast cancer patients. All right. And because it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month, is there anything that I'm missing that you'd like me to know? The most important thing is women should be getting their mammograms on an annual basis starting at 40 or up. If you think you have high risk, bring this up. Maybe you need imaging earlier. Also, younger women have more dense breasts. Mammograms are a little harder to see through dense breast tissue. So we do recommend ultrasounds with dense breast tissues. So we're talking usually the younger women, they usually get annual mammograms with ultrasounds. Also, if you have a mass, if something is different with your breast, this should not be ignored whether you're a male or female. Also, a lot of patients feel tremendous guilt when they get diagnosed with it. I have very healthy patients. Patients need to realize this is not their fault. It's one in eight. It's the most common cancer among women here in North America. It's not their fault. That's one of the biggest misconceptions. Dr. Lynn Choi is a breast surgeon at Albany Medical Center in Albany, New York. Dr. Choi, thanks for speaking with me. Thanks so much for doing this. It's such an important month. I feel like it should be every month, but I'm happy that we have one month dedicated. If you don't take care of your health, you really don't have anything, you know? To wrap things up, we're going to change gears a little bit now and bring you an interesting story on sex work in New York. Last month, New York Governor Kathy Hochul said she is looking into a proposal to legalize sex work in the state. The move has long been pushed by advocates who say it would empower sex workers and give them added protections. WAMC's Ashley Hupful has more for us. Early in her term, the Democrat told reporters she is speaking with advocates and open to addressing the issue when the legislative session starts in January. It is absolutely something I've thought about and I'm considering and I'm discussing it with many advocates and people who uh, have strong opinions on this. There are two competing bills in the legislature. One would completely decriminalize sex work. The other bars police from charging sex workers but still allows them to charge clients. Health Committee Chair Dick Gottfried sponsors the decriminalization bill in the Assembly. The Democrat from the 75th District concedes the measure doesn't have enough support to pass yet. You know, I've seen people's minds change on a lot of very difficult issues where you might not have expected it. 
and sometimes the change comes a lot more quickly than anybody would have thought. You know, recently we saw that with same-sex marriage. So I think having the governor raising the topic and wading in on it is enormously important. Godfried and State Senator Jessica Ramos's New York Anti-Trafficking Network bill would only apply to sex workers who are consenting adults. The Assembly version of the bill passed in June 2020, but the state Senate didn't bring it to the floor for a vote. Gottfried says his bill, rather than the version backed by Assemblywoman Pamela Hunter and State Senator Liz Kruger, both Democrats, would be better for sex workers since it separates the sex work trade and criminal justice. The Urban Justice Center's sex workers project Andy Bowen agrees, saying there is no replacement for full decriminalization. People can make a living. Sex Workers Project, we aim and we do make sure that we support sex workers regardless of whether they're in the trade by choice, circumstance, or coercion. There are people who who do sex work because it is a fulfilling, freeing activity that brings them joy. There, of course, we know people who do sex work because it is a survival activity. That is also valid. Every bit as much as somebody may work, you know, any particular job is because it is a job. So outside of, yes, the interaction with the police, decriminalization is important to improving the lives of sex workers because it just allows them to do the economic activity that they need to do. Critics argue full decriminalization of sex work would make workers more vulnerable to harm. Others oppose it on a moral level. Gottfried says the way New York's been approaching sex work hasn't been working so far. The current system has had a couple of thousand years to try to get it right. It's failed, and it's time to recognize that. You know, sex work is about the only example I can think of where an activity that on its own is legal is made illegal if you charge for it. And I don't think that makes good sense. Cayenne Dorshiro is founder and executive director of Gays and Lesbians Living in a Transgender Society Incorporated, based in Queens. She is also a former sex worker. Dorshiro says there are pros and cons to decriminalization. Well, when I was a sex worker, it was survival. At the same time, I was working for non-for-profits that did not pay black trans women enough to survive. So what was I supposed to do? Do the work of saving lives and be homeless? Or do sex work and save lives so I can have a roof over my head? Dorshiro also claims lawmakers haven't engaged the black community for input on the bill. It was only earlier this year New York State passed a ban on a law commonly known as walking wild trans which critics say has been used by police to harass and arrest law-abiding trans people. When you think of these bills and laws that have been passed, how do these bills and laws help a black trans woman that still can't walk while she's trained? A black trans woman that needs housing, and because she's had a history of sex work, that record can defer a landlord from taking that. So there are pros and cons that people are not talking about or thought about. And if they have, they're being very quiet around the organizing around black lives. Reporting from Albany, I'm Ashley Hupful for WAMC News. 
Thanks for listening to this week's 51%. 51% is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. I'm Jesse King. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok, and our theme is Lolita by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. A big thanks to Dr. Lynn Choi, Pat Bradley, and Ashley Hupful for contributing to this week's episode. If you like what you're hearing, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 51% Radio. And you can find episodes new and old at wamcpodcast.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next week, again, I'm Jesse King for 51%. I was every single girl. I was nobody else. I was so sure of myself. I was 15 and a half. He was a hollow laugh And I lost my cool somewhere along the way The nightmare down the hallway I had to learn how to look away I lost my cool No electricity Hot rain on the concrete Sweet man